Warning, this episode of VU History contains mention of suicide. Coming up. Within those first four years in the House of Representatives, the Secretary of State killed himself. The Chairman of the State and Local Government Committee killed himself. The FBI arrived inside the state capitol undercover as well as visibly, talking to legislators, attempting to find out what was occurring within that space, and in some cases attempting to tempt things that were in violation of the law. Bill Purcell serves as the fifth mayor of Nashville, elected first in 1999 and then again in 2003. He is now in private practice of law in Nashville and an adjunct professor of public policy at Vanderbilt University. In this interview, we talked about what it takes to lead a big city like Nashville, the horrors he witnessed as a politician, and he also offers advice to help you lead a city in the midst of conflict. From the newsroom of the Vanderbilt Hustler, this is VU History with Jalen Sims. Yeah, so tell us about your early life. How did you get into politics? Why did you get into politics? Well, it wasn't the earliest part of my life. Uh -huh. I was a lawyer first, graduated from Vanderbilt in 1979, became a legal services lawyer in rural West Tennessee. My interest coming out of law school was to do le legal representation for people who were underserved uh, or not served at all, and legal services, now called legal aid, uh, was the program then and now that serves those who cannot afford lawyers in civil matters. Uh, two years uh, after I began my practice in West Tennessee, mm -hmm. I was offered a job as a public defender here, and for the next three and a half years, I spent uh, much of my time in the jail in Nashville or in the criminal courts of Nashville defending individuals accused of crime who, again, were unable to afford counsel without the appointment of counsel. And so began my life there mm -hmm. uh, in, in the communities of first rural West Tennessee and then ultimately the more, much more urban setting of Nashville, working with people who uh, found themselves challenged by the justice system, challenged by uh, uh, their inability to hire counsel and a need, obviously, if justice was going to be available to them, to have a lawyer uh, that, could, that could represent them. I, having completed my time in the public defender's office, I was in private practice when my neighborhood association came to me and said, uh, we'd like you to run for the legislature. Mm -hmm. And I said, I've never been to the Capitol. <laughs> I'd grown up in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. been, obviously in different parts of Tennessee, but I'd never been to the Capitol. I never uh, thought that I would be in the legislature. And they said, that's fine. Uh, you'll be perfect. They, <laughs> they had been to the Capitol, and they didn't want to go. Uh, so that particular year, 1986, with the support of uh, a handful of colleagues and friends, many of them from the public defender and legal services community, I ran for the legislature from East Nashville, mm -hmm. and uh, I was elected. It was a long, hot summer. I uh, shrank. I was down to 135 pounds. My neck shrunk to 12 and a half. <laughs> but that said, I was elected uh, by the overwhelming margin of 330-something votes mm -hmm. and uh, went off to the Tennessee House of Representatives. That's how I started. So what really goes into creating a successful campaign? Well, I, obviously and, and importantly, you have to have a candidate who truly wants to do the job, mm -hmm. who has a commitment to, to 
whatever the role may be, whether whether it's uh, the president of the United States or or a legislator or or a city council member, uh, it has to be a person who can attract others yeah. who would be supportive. Uh, there are obviously many people running these days who have unlimited resources of their own, but typically that's not sufficient. Mm-hmm. What is critical is that you are a person who uh, has both an understanding of what the opportunity is, but more importantly, someone who uh, can uh, encourage others or accept the support and help of others who have a similar uh, view about the way in which that particular work should be done. Candidates, uh, let me just say straightforwardly, and again, too simply, but very truthfully, Mm -hmm. uh, you have to have candidates and campaigns. And without a good candidate or without a campaign, you always lose. And that's the basic truth of politics. When you're going into politics, you have this kind of thought that, well, I don't know if you thought that everything was going to be a breeze, but a lot of politicians come into contact with conflicting moments within their leadership. How did you handle conflict during your time as mayor? During my first four years in the Tennessee House of Representatives, there was a, a great scandal mm-hmm. and a series of crises that occurred. Within those first four years in the House of Representatives, the Secretary of State killed himself. The chairman Mm. of the state and local government committee killed himself. The FBI arrived inside the state capitol undercover as well as visibly, talking to legislators, attempting to find out what was occurring within that space, and in some cases attempting to tempt people to do things that were in violation of the law. By the end of those four years, as individuals were charged with crimes and convicted of crimes and obviously terrible tragedy that I've already mentioned, I I became convinced that I was either going to be a leader within the House or I would leave because obviously this was not a system that was proceeding as either my mother, my fifth grade teacher, or I had thought Mm -hmm. government should proceed. So in that year, 1990, I began to run for majority leader of the Tennessee House. And because of the things that occurred there was a desire in the House for change, and I felt that increasingly. It was explained to me that no one from uh, Philadelphia had ever been elected majority leader. That's where I'd grown up, and mm-hmm. I said I assumed that no one from Philadelphia had ever run for majority leader before. And they said, you know, no one from a city's ever been elected before. And I said, that I did not know, that no one in the history of the state of Tennessee had been elected majority leader as a legislator from a city, but I felt as though the House, under those circumstances, would, would be open to, to change, and uh, I was elected in this, in this, on this occasion by two votes, mm-hmm. which was one more than I needed, but pretty close. That said, uh, in that next six years, when I, uh, during the time that I was majority leader, with leadership under Speaker of the House, Jimmy Nafee, 
Speaker Pro Tem, Lois DeBerry from Memphis, and other leaders, uh, we really came together as a, as a house, uh, as I think a state ultimately during that time period, even close in time to the tragedies and, and, and uh, criminal investigations that I just described. We were the best managed state in America two years in a row. We were a legislature that was found to be one of the legislatures that was successful in America during that time. Uh, we advanced to the causes of education funding. We came out from underneath federal control of our, of our prison system. We came out from underneath state control of our education system. Mm -hmm. We reformed the laws of juvenile justice broadly in the state of Tennessee. Uh, and we made progress on all fronts. And that, I think, is a story of another time, but it's also a story that continues to give me hope about now uh, and the future. When people want to change within the government, I, I know that they can. And when the people that they represent want them to change, I know that they will. Wow, that was very powerful. To kind of enlighten the mood, what do you consider your most significant achievement during your time in office? I know you kind of said this a little bit, but I want you to go deeper. Well, I hope it was during the time that I was mayor. Mayor is a unique position in this country, particularly mm -hmm. those cities that have the, the stronger mayor form of government. Uh, the local government, it goes without saying, and is often said is closest to the people, but more importantly, it's the place where people can hope for and really should expect that there will be attention to the basic needs that they have. I was mayor for eight years, and it was... Uh, a very good time to be mayor of Nashville. And most people who have been elected mayor uh, will, will say, whether they later go on to be governor or senator or duke or earl or king or whatever they may ultimately mm -hmm. become, most people who have been a mayor in a large city will say that's the best job in politics. Having said that, I hope that the most important thing I accomplished those eight years was to build a kind of, not a kind of, a real consensus in the city about okay. what's most important. From the time I was a candidate to the last day I was in office, and even now, I said repeatedly to the people of Nashville or anyone who would listen, education is the most important thing we do. It always was. It always will be. A close second is the safety of the city, the safety of everyone in the city. Mm -hmm. uh, and thirdly, quality of life. And the quality of life is different for everybody, but everybody <laughs> in the city from one side of the city to the other should have, a, have a, 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 an access to and an ability to and a belief that they can have the quality of life that should come from living in a city in this country. I worked hard over eight years to, to through repetitive mm -hmm. sharing of that message, uh, to make that be a central belief of, uh, of the city itself, of the people in the city. And I believe that that happened candidate who re replaced me as mayor or came in after me as mayor, Carl Dean, uh, campaigned on those same notions and was mm -hmm. elected on those notions. His successor, similarly, in this most recent election, uh, Freddie O'Connell, the mayor now, uh, has said the same things, sometimes slightly different words, slightly different order, but there is a shared belief that those are the critical parts of what life in a city, especially life in Nashville as a city, uh, should mean. And I hope it always will be. In your opinion, what are the most pressing issues that the city of Nashville is currently facing? 
and how would you combat to find a solution to fix them? Education is and always will be the critical component, the thing that both brings us together at this moment in time and then ultimately assures our future. Uh, and that will always be, that will always lead the list of things that the, the mayor now and in the future has to attend to. For many years in this country, mayors didn't feel responsible for education. Mayors said it's the school board's job, it's someone else's job. Mm -hmm. But I think now in successful cities, there's an understanding by mayors that it's, it's on them mm -hmm. to be sure that the system is functioning in a way that, that will allow education to be both good and accessible to every child. And this education commitment includes, obviously, children who have just arrived here, it's pre-K, uh, and it's actually lifelong as well. Now, the mayor doesn't have responsibility for all pieces of that, but there is an obligation of the city to be sure that we're providing what, what children and families need in order to, to, to be a part of and, and be successful in, in this city, in this world, and that's forever. And as long as that's in the front of a mayor's mind, then constant attention to the needs of the school system will be there. Those are financial, but they are in lots of other ways um, beyond financial. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, again, and, and I think this is now evident, regrettably more evident than it may have been at different times, safety really is a, a, a critical component, whether you're on the Vanderbilt campus or uh, on the far reaches of the city. Uh, people need to feel safe. If people don't feel safe, they won't come. And they certainly won't stay, mm -hmm. whether it's for a weekend in the downtown or for the rest of their lives. And that safety has to be truly felt in every portion of the city. When I was a young lawyer, people tended to think, well, you know, it happened on the other side of town. It happened in East Nashville. It happened in South Nashville. That's not where I live. I don't have to worry. I think people now understand if it happens anywhere in the city, it may not have touched you at that moment, but mm -hmm. it will. And people especially feel this uh, within areas that have been underserved historically and where uh, today there, there is, with reason in this country, distrust and concern about justice and the accessibility of justice, fair implementation of rules and, and laws. So safety has to be a constant uh, concern of the whole city but especially of the mayor. And then finally, on this issue of quality of life, it is different things for different people. Some people, it's the symphony orchestra. Some people, it's the Titans football team. Some mm -hmm. people, it's greenways and bikeways and having the ability to go outside. For some people, it's all of the above. But at the end of the day, that quality of life, again, a mayor needs to be concerned, is accessible to everyone. Not everyone can go to an NFL football team. In fact, most people can't go to an NFL football team. Most people can't go to a hockey game, and if they can, perhaps once in a blue moon. But in general, these are things that are not necessarily accessible to a whole community. But as a mayor, you can be sure that those things that a city offers are available throughout the whole large city, and you need to make every effort you can to make it accessible to everyone so that everyone feels like they're a part of the success of the place. Those are the challenges. Those are the challenges 20 years ago, 50 years ago. They'll be the challenges 100 years from now. There's some other things that come along at a different point in time. We had a terrible flood during Carl Dean's uh, time as mayor. Uh, there are uh, events that occur in the life of a city that need response, tornadoes, uh, 
during the time that I was mayor, 9-11 occurred in New York, and suddenly all cities were concerned about how safe would we be should things come. There was anthrax distributed through the mail by people we do not yet know, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, anthrax arriving in a city is a scary thing. Uh, there are events, and there, is a, and there are situational times as well. This one now is, or the major one now, I think, is the relationship between the city and the state. Uh, that has declined. There is a divide. The state and the state legislature have been passing laws that are uh, highly problematic uh, to the city. Mm -hmm. uh, and the state has felt disconnected from the city and disrespected by the city, and the city feels the same way. That can't continue. That simply is a recipe for disaster, short, medium, and long term. The city and the state have to get along. They have to work together. The success of the state depends on the success of the city, and the city will not be successful if the state is antagonistic. More importantly, if they are not true partners in the work. That's in front of this mayor now, and I believe he knows that and has begun to work on it. Uh, but it, it is the first order of business for this new mayor in this time. You moved from Philadelphia. You went to Hamilton College. Why did you choose to move to the South? And what is your favorite thing about the South? Well, I was cold. <laughs> it's very cold. Yeah. After I was not mayor anymore, I got a job at, uh, at Harvard for three years. Mm -hmm. And I was cold again. <laughs> They're very nice. I, I was very happy in Boston. They were very nice to me. People aren't cold, but the place is really cold. And so... I came back home for the second time. Uh, I came south in part because my, my mother's family and my mother grew up in the south, and I knew something of it, so I didn't feel like it was a foreign land from, from Philadelphia. Uh, but at the same time, when I arrived here in the 70s, I wasn't sure. Mm -hmm. Like most, I think, uh, students at Vanderbilt now, they may have ideas about where they want to be, but you don't really know until you go, until you see, until yeah. you experience is it a welcoming place? Is it a place where I feel at home? Is it a place where I see my future? And I came to over a period of years to, to come to find that about Nashville. So about Nashville, there are two things that are my most favorite things. One is really where we just were. It's a very welcoming city. Mm -hmm. And it has been, I think and believe, from its beginning. I, I would say a uniquely welcoming place. Year after year, we're, we're ranked in national polls as the friendliest city in America. And that's just a reflection of the fact that we're very welcoming. doesn't matter. You're from Philadelphia. You're from Kurdistan. Mm -hmm. You're from Chattanooga. You're from wherever. If you want to come and you want to be part of it and you want to, to, to move this city forward, in general, the response that people provide, I'm proof of that, but there are thousands of others, tens of thousands of others like me. The city's basic reaction is come on in. Be part of it. Be part of what we're going to do. And that's why we have the largest Kurdish community outside of Kurdistan, certainly in this hemisphere. That's why we continue to be a place that grows both in the city and outside because people come and they feel welcome here. That's a general operating principle and one of the things I think that has made us so successful over the long term. Of course, the thing I particularly like about Nashville is that we created here in Nashville that special, that special food, which is our only indigenous food. <laughs> and, and I, I know you know where I'm going. With yeah. <laughs> it's Nashville hot chicken. So it was invented here. It uh, began here. It's been shared throughout this city for now uh, more than uh, it's going on a century. But um, 
is now available worldwide. I just got a, a text message from a former colleague of mine who was in Seoul, South Korea, and there was a Nashville hot chicken joint. There are two Nashville hot chicken places in Bangkok, Thailand. Uh, one of the places, Foul Mouth, pretty good name. Uh-huh. <laughs> a, a, pla- a couple of places in Australia. I mean, Vancouver, Finland, sort of choose your point on the compass. Country music has also gone worldwide, as has gospel music, as has lots of things that have touched Nashville. But uh, it's Nashville Hot Chicken at the moment that is uh, taking the name Nashville worldwide a little bit, uh, a little bit faster every day. College students like myself love to read books, and so I've been dying to ask you: Are there any specific books or authors that have had a significant influence on your political philosophy? That's a very interesting question. I would say. In the early days, uh, Willie Morris. I was up in the north. Willie Morris was a guy from the south Mm -hmm. who had gone to the north. And I think uh, he had a significant effect on my thinking about the the south at that time and whether or not that was my future and where I should be. Of course, he'd gone the other way. But uh, it struck me that south toward home might be the way for me. I'd say Faulkner of the of the novelists again helping me understand uh, the place where my mother was from the area where my mother was from but also Faulkner speaks to everyone uh, in different ways but everyone mm-hmm. so Faulkner had an early I think uh, effect on my thinking uh, in that way but I'm with you I think reading is is a lifelong critical component yeah uh, and so whatever stage you are, to find authors that speak to you, that uh, inform you, inspire you, uh, is, is critical. And, and it's a lifelong project. These days, it's harder, I think, sometimes for people to, well, there's so much news coming through your, through your news feed. There's so much information to yeah. coming to you from other places to set aside the hours that are required to sit down and just read through can be challenging. But for the people who do it and stay with it and stay with it for life, it is, it is, a, is constantly inspiring and transformative and critical. And I'm so glad that you said what you said. <laughs> I got two more questions for you because I know you have to go. The first one is, we all listen to music. So if you would pick a song, what song would you say represents your time as mayor, your leadership style? Well, the song we used during the campaign is the song that I think uh, continued to uh, inspire me through the time I was mayor. Van Morrison uh, has a song called Bright Side of the Road, mm-hmm. and he was good enough to give us permission to use it as a campaign song, and we did. And when he came to Nashville, I was uh, thrilled to give him the key to the city and the, the freedom of the city, as they say in in, uh, in Europe, uh, that's where you want to be. You want to be on the bright side of the road. You want to, you want to, wherever you are, whatever challenges you face, whatever things we are not doing that we should be better. There is, there is a way to do them. There is a bright side of the road, and you just have to stay at it until you get there. How does one receive the key to the city? <laughs> you need to know the mayor. <laughs> Didn't the mayor offer it to you when he was here? Oh, 
Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> He's not the mayor anymore, but there's a new mayor and you still have time. Yeah. <laughs> if you could look back on your younger self, let's say um, 12 years old, what advice would you give to him? I think it is the same advice I give to my students now and, frankly, anyone who's interested in this kind of advice. Uh, you have to stay open to the possibilities in your world. It's all well and good to have a long-term plan. I'm not arguing for or against that, but I'm mm -hmm. proof uh, in the, uh, of the fact that Nothing that I did or have done or mm -hmm. am doing now did I foresee when I was 12, when I was 15, when I was 20, <laughs> or later. I didn't foresee any of it. Uh, but I did believe that if I did whatever job was in front of me and chose, I hope, well within the options that were available and stayed open to the possibilities and the prospects in the world, that things that were worth doing that were worth doing for me, but more importantly worth doing for the world, would come along. And if you stay open to those opportunities, when they come, you'll recognize them and you won't resist. You'll accept them. I hadn't been planning to be a public defender, and suddenly a public defender appeared in my office and said, would you come work for me? I certainly hadn't been planning to go to the legislature. Let me say that one thing I knew for sure when I was in the legislature is I didn't want to be the mayor. I would have told you you should be the mayor. Anyone mm -hmm. else should be the mayor, not me. I was wrong about that. I'd closed off that option. I was wrong to do that. And when I realized I was wrong, then be open to changing your course, changing the course of your life, but maybe a little bit the world if you can. Um, I had not been expecting to go to Tennessee State University and start a college of public service and urban affairs. <laughs> the president of TSU came to me and said, I'd like you to do that. And I was open to it and accepting of him and what he thought I could and should do. And uh, that staying open to the opportunities of life is at least for me uh, the key. And if you'll stay that way, even when you get to my stage in life, uh, there's still other opportunities that, that will appear, and you need to say yes. And uh, An example is coming to this podcast room with you. Uh -huh. You didn't know me, and I didn't know you. Yeah. I haven't been down in this space in decades. <laughs> but you asked, and I responded, and I'm delighted that we've had this time together, and I'm appreciative of what you're doing. Bill, thank you. Can't get enough of the Vanderbilt Hustlers VU History Podcast? Make sure to check back monthly on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Music for new content exploring the historical context of Vanderbilt's prestige.